0: now for another Pinball Profile, I'm your host, Jeff Teolis. You can find our group on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Pinball Profile. Email us pinballprofile at gmail.com. Please subscribe on either iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. I love talking to everybody in this format on Pinball Profile, whether it's a game designer, whether it's somebody running a charity, or one of the world's greatest pinball players, as we have today. Andre Massenkoff joins us. Hi, Andre. How are
1: you? All right. Doing great, Jeff. How are you?
0: Very, very good. Now, I last saw you at Pinberg on stage, and we will get to that incredible Final Four match in a little bit. But uh, earlier in the year, I saw you up in Toronto at the IFPA Championships. And I do have to ask you right off the bat, because I think you had a rental car and you went from the airport there. You took the most expensive toll road ever, the 407. And I am dying to know what that toll was for you.
1: Okay, you were nice enough to tell me about that toll road after... I had finished taking it at IFPA. Uh, Yeah, I had no idea. I knew it was a toll road, and honestly, I'd never been on a toll road that expensive. And it's really interesting you ask how much it was, because I just got the bill on my credit card bill, billed through the car (laughs) rental company. And it was some weird number, Canadian, but it came out to 25 bucks, even, American. Oh, you got lucky. Yeah, it seemed reasonable enough. It got me to IFPA right when, uh, sorry about that. It got me to IFPA uh, right when practice started, so I got my full practice time on account of taking that road, so absolutely worth it.
0: A necessary evil for sure. I mean, I think uh, Zach Wollens and I were joking about it too, but your ride to get to IFPA was certainly a lot better than his, uh, that road he had to take through Atlanta and then back and forth. You had it easy, 25 bucks, piece of cake.
1: Yeah, I just can't imagine what it would be like for commuters. And Jeff, you might hear some planes going by, it's Fleet Week out here in San Francisco, Two Blue Angels just flew over where I'm at. Um, it's pretty exciting, pretty loud. Uh, you might hear them again. Anyone hearing those loud noises? Those are the Blue Angels.
0: I thought it might be F-14 Tomcat. You're reliving 2011 <laughs> when you won the Papa World Championship. Was that maybe in the background there at all? Do you have that going at all times?
1: <laughs> you know, in my mind, sometimes I do. That's a great song, and and gosh, I know it. I won the Papa World Championships on F-14 Tomcat seven years ago but that game's really stuck with me and I don't know I think about it a lot <laughs> it's nice of you to make that connection with the Blue Angels here uh, maybe there are Tomcats up there who knows General Yagoff might be up there too
0: I don't know if that game will be at Josh Sharp's house when you go for the power 100 if he ever had it I'm sure he's getting rid of it because surprise he took a second in that Papa championship back in 2011 although it really did come down to that game because I guess any one of the four of you could have won the championship based on that game
1: yeah, the thing with uh, Kaylee um, and and Josh, they're a point ahead of me. So uh, if I took second and Jim took first, I'd be in a tie-break with one of them. And if I took first, I would have won outright, which is what I did. But that was a quick, quick game to decide at all. I mean, less than 10 minutes, even though it's a multiball game, nobody started multiball. A lot of drains out that left out lane because that kickback, is hard to light, and once it's lit and used, well, checked shut off again. Um, that was so draining. I mean, it, it, for me, it was shocking when I won because it all happened so quickly, and I won with less than a million points.
0: Yeah, that, That's not much on that game for sure. Now, did you pick that game, or who picked it?
1: I picked that for the final game. I had choice of game, and there's some other games there that I like and, you know, had experience on, but playing against Kaylee, playing against Jim Belzito, playing against Josh Sharp, you know, I was thinking about Monster Bash, and I mean, we can all play it well. So I didn't think I had a decided advantage on that, especially if I picked it, I'd go first, so they'd know exactly what they'd need to beat me. So I picked something with a little more variance, hoping uh, that the gamble would pay off, and it did.
0: See, now watching back and looking at what you did in 2011 when you won that, my guess without you saying that would have been he's picking that because of the speed of the game and the style of play that you do, Andre. When anybody talks about playing on the fly, sometimes they don't even say on the fly. They use your name as a verb. Oh, you're Andreing it. Because you just go, go, go. I don't know if I've ever seen you cradle up.
1: Yeah, not in any serious way during multi balls. It's pretty rare that I'll do that. There's certain incidents where I like to, like on, uh, let's see. Elvira and the Party Monsters, after hitting the jackpot, I will trap up on one of the flippers and just keep hitting that right ramp. Same thing with Diner, after hitting the jackpot, keep shooting the left ramp and being trapped up on the left flipper, but th- those are pretty rare instances, and I don't trap too much. F-14, of course, if you get to the multiball, you could do a more controlled multiball, but ultimately, all the shots are dangerous. I mean, there's no shot that rewards you with something safe besides a lock shot. And uh, those were hard to find in that game. It was so draining. And so it did work out, you know, in my favor that time. I don't know. I was just surprised how quickly it went down again because they were great players. But it was an evil, evil machine. And I won that game just from fumbling around and just keeping the ball in play and hitting shots and missing shots. And that got me enough points to win it.
0: But because of your style of play, I guess that doesn't rattle you because you're used to balls flying everywhere. And that is something I always wonder, with all the great players that you've seen, and you've mentioned some of them in California, You know, whether it be Jim Belcedo, Neil Schatz, Keith Elwin when he was there, all these great players, when you saw them cradle up, especially in multiball, did you ever think, I'm going to try that?
1: Boy, I have considered it. And I remember the exact moment I first saw it, 1994 state championships of Ohio. Paul Madison on Rescue 911, and I could not believe what I was seeing. He played endlessly in multi-ball with a ball trapped on the right flipper. He'd shoot the right ramp with the left flipper, then he'd two-stage by flipping only the upper flipper to hit jackpots. And it kind of sickened me because I thought, "Wow, I can't do that, and when will it end?" And this is my opponent, and I'm definitely losing this game. You know, and that's where I first got exposed to it. And of course, you know, over time, I see the value of it. I see how it's executed. Uh, these guys get really good, consistent results based on control, and uh, it works. and And I've experimented with it. Honestly, I feel very uncomfortable trapping up, especially during multi ball. I'll still play with traps and passes. Like if you see me play Adam Stanley, I'm not too wild. I mean, I shoot the chair, I, I catch it. Uh, maybe pass it to the left flipper from the right flipper, and then hit the ramp, and then shoot the chair again, and maybe the wildest thing I do is play a very freestyle multiball in atoms or quick multi balls, and, and maybe shoot the chair from the right flipper um, that people do less just because it's more dangerous. Um, so it's just, I'm out of my comfort zone, but people talk about control, and the reason I flip so much is because I feel in control. When I'm flipping, I don't feel in control when I've got a ball or two trapped on one flipper because... I can't use that flipper um, while those balls are trapped, and I like having the freedom of using them both, even though it can help me sometimes in certain games. My style's very amenable to, like Metallica. I get a lot of fuel targets and get double scoring more often or more captive balls. I like Coffin playing that style, so it can help me in other places, like Jackpot, where I've learned to slow down my game, to get it under control, to get optimum results and be able to compete with the best players, a wild style generally is not going to win it for you against the kind of caliber players that are out there. But I feel in control when I'm flipping wildly, even though those balls certainly don't look in control.
0: Andre, is it safe for me to say maybe your favorite designer or you certainly like Steve Ritchie type games because of the flow?
1: 100%. And I love You know, Pat Lawler games, and there's some other great games. I love Demolition Man. But in the end, Steve Ritchie games consistently have this flow and this kinetics and call-outs and quick action that satisfies me the most, you know, as a shot maker. So, yeah, Steve Ritchie, that's definitely my favorite designer. I guess, uh, yeah, the one big machine, modern machine I invested in a few years back was the ACDC Premium. Um, you know, of course, that's the Steve Ritchie game, and I love just about everything he's made.
0: I was thinking of another game, a newer game that you must love, too, because I don't know anybody who can cradle up on that game. It's very, very difficult. Just go, go, go would be TNA. That has to be a dream game for you.
1: I like the quickness, but it is a tough game. You know, any game where what you're shooting at is closer to the flippers, you get these rebounds very quickly, and they're really hard to manage in multiball. You know, TNA versus World Poker Tour, where there's this very wide open play field. It's so quick, and the responsiveness needs to be there. I think it's more of a challenge for me because of that. You know, misses produce strains and just wild ball action, but it's also more fun when you have that great ball in the super jackpots and destroying reactors. So that is a special game, and relatively simple rule-wise. I mean, what do you do? You go for multiball, you blow up. Uh, reactors the only real question is what order do you want to go into that
0: my dream game for you would be almost like a hybrid something that hasn't been done but if you can just imagine balls coming out of the plunger like the game hyperball and you actually have flippers to react that would be great to watch you andre play something like that
1: (laughs) that sounds like a lot of fun i would like to try that game Um, You know, Apollo 13 does have that 13-ball multi-ball, but it's pretty unrealistic because there's so much traffic. You're hitting balls into other balls until you get down to a more reasonable number. But yeah, maybe someday that game will come along.
0: Well, you mentioned Apollo 13. I think of also Indiana Jones, the newer game by Stern, and that has several multi-balls as well. What is the good number? I mean, you can't manage eight or more, so do you let a few of them drain, or what's your strategy when eight come at you at once?
1: That's a great question, I definitely don't trap. You know, I do fire away. I just had a big, I don't know what it was last night at League 5 or 6-ball, multi-ball. I never had. It was like the Robin one on the new code on Batman 66. And I just fire away. You know, when you got 6-balls, Twilight Zone, Lost in the Zone, another spot might be Guardians of the Galaxy, Immolation Initiative when you've got a lot of balls, or Cherry Bomb. Sometimes I will let some go. To get my shot, like in Lost in the Zone, I want to get the ball up to the power field on Twilight Zone. Or on Cherry Bomb, I really want to get into Groot's mouth when it's ready. And it's really hard to do with a lot of balls. Six balls is a blast. I mean, it's a rush, but I think when I get down to three or less, I feel like it's far more manageable to me. And maybe my ideal number would be something like three. Two seems like too few because you're so close to losing the multi-ball when you lose one of them. But there's always that Game of Thrones Add-a-ball if you're Martel, so you can get some backup on some of the games, or a nice Add-a-ball mystery award on something like uh, Deadpool, you know, more recently, or uh, the New Pirates.
0: Andre, you've had such a great history too, and for those who may not know how it all started for you, I mean, you've been playing since you were three, four years old. I guess your father used to put you on the glass so you could kind of reach the flippers there, and that caught you fixated into it. But Once you started playing more competitively, your first big tournament win, in fact, actually your first ever win, was at 2004, the Papa B Division Finals, and some heavyweight players were there too, it's not just your regular B Division, Andy Rosa, Drew Sedolia, Brian Domini, and others, and you got that first win there. At that point, were you thinking, oh, this is easy, I can do this, or what were you thinking back in 2004, first win?
1: (laughs) Definitely not, this is easy, (laughs) you know. So much of, I guess, progressing and winning is about seeing what you're capable of doing, and you don't know you can do it until you've done it. And so that was one step among many of hitting a high point to that point in my tournament career that kind of set the table and gave me the confidence and the awareness that, wow, I can take it to the next level. Wow. Sorry, there goes one of those blue angels. Uh, So it gave me the confidence that I could take it to the new level and then qualify for A the next year make the A final the year afterwards not easy the final game was Terminator 3 all of us hit three supers and were a little over 200 million each and I barely passed my opponents and it was one of those scenarios where certain players needed to not do so well in the game and I had to win to pull it off and as you mentioned really tough players so it wasn't easy but it taught me that wow if I can do this What's the next step? And Papa 2006 was huge being in the final with Lyman, Keith, and Donovan. Getting to that final, going in the final game tied for first with Donovan and Lyman. When I got to that final and ended up taking fourth, I finally learned there that, wow, I can win a world championship, which had been a goal of mine in 2006 when that happened for already 12 years since my first world championship. And so... Uh, never easy. The opponents make it hard. The games make it hard. And of course, as a player, you know, it's such a mental game and your approach is critical. You can make it hard on yourself, you know, if you slow yourself down. But that was a huge win, <laughs> winning a Space Jet trophy uh, in Papa B 2004. It just kind of set the table for further successes to come.
0: It's interesting. Twice now you've talked about the mental game, too. You talked about That comfort zone, you know, I I feel safer when I don't have the ball cradled. And now you talk about the mental game after the Papa B 2004 championship and the success you had a couple years later making it to the final four in 2006. So we don't really talk a lot about the mental game. In fact, we watch you and Bowen do tutorials on more of the physical game, but maybe some tips on some of the mental game. It seems from what I'm hearing from you, a guy who's been top 25 for as long as I've been playing pinball, that... The mental game is maybe where most people fail.
1: It is so dangerous. There's so many ways to go wrong with pinball for a variety of reasons. And I think the reasons vary from person to person. You know, the number one thing, well, there are three things I always recommend when I give pinball classes at shows is one, know the machine, uh, the rules of the machine. Number two, know that specific machine you're playing, how to hit the shots on that attack from Mars versus the other one how the ball kicks out of holes and comes off ramps. And number three, I always tell people, know yourself, know your style, know what you like, know your weaknesses and what you need to work on and find what will work for you. Now, it's much easier said than done, and this is a very complex process that I've been working on for decades now in my competitions. But some of the more specific things that have to do with mental state and things I tell people a lot at talks or friends, you know, before we get into tournaments, I I say mentally try to be as comfortable as you can. A tournament, especially a big one, is not a good time to experiment with trying things that are new. Maybe you see another player do something successfully that you've never done. Once in a while, maybe it's the best thing you can do if that's the only way that you can catch up to that player score-wise. But generally, staying within your comfort zone when something's on the line <laughs> should help i I don't know how many people would be successful if they're playing out of their comfort zone although it helps them grow i recommend that they do that more in smaller events and when they're practicing another big piece of advice mentally is something my old baseball coach used to say you know bad things are going to happen never compound physical errors with further mental errors you know um like if you uh you know, make an errant throw in the baseball field or play a bad ball or make a mistake in a game you play and lose that game, you need to move on from that game immediately. The only thing you need to take away from that is what you learned from that mistake. But you can't be hard on yourself. If you've got another game to play, you need to focus on that next game. And I especially tell a lot of the people who are new to Pinburg to do that because you will have ups and downs through the long two, hopefully three days of Pinburg. And what you need to do is definitely keep moving forward, bounce back, take some learning from that mental side, know, from a mental or physical mistake that you made. And, uh, you know, put in the memory bank, but do not let it affect you and bring you down. Um, and I do encourage people to play their own styles. I don't know. Sometimes I don't. I met a young man in Germany a few years ago at a tournament, and he says he's emulating my style. Um, and I told him, I said, yeah, it works great. It's super fun. But I did say... I believe that in the long run, most people are gonna get more consistent results playing uh, with more control. I mean, it's just less volatile. Possibly less fun for those people who I know enjoy playing with a lot of flow and have had some success with it, like Sunshine Bon or Bob Matthews, <laughs> He He plays a real live game sometimes, even though he's willing to trap as well. But the mental side is so powerful And, uh, there's so many things to consider, but the best thing is just knowing yourself, knowing where you slip up and then finding a way to address it.
0: Boy, I really like hearing that baseball analogy. First of all, too, about making the mental error, physical errors are going to happen, but the mental errors, you know, did you risk a bad shot? We always talk about what is the safest shot? Keith Elwin, always looks for what's the safest shot. I mean, yeah, there are some shots that are going to be more risky and obviously have more reward, but he ideally likes to take the safest shot. If I miss, where's it going to go? So that's maybe part of the mental game that we need as well too. And you talk about when you miss a shot, that can make players go ballistic or get frustrated. In poker, we call it, it goes on tilt and they can't let it go. They can't forget the mistake. I just recently played in a match, a game I had never played before in Indy 500. I know it's sad that I've never played it, but I never played it. And I'm playing against Trent and Greg Pavarelli and John Del Zappo. Never played this game before. And it's a playoff. And I'm like, okay, I know how to really get some big points there. I've watched some tutorials. So I'm trying to hit the right orbit. And I think I tried two or three times. Bricked. Got on the other flipper. Okay, let's do what the left orbit does. Brick, brick, brick. So I wasn't Mm -hmm. finding the shots. But for me, my mental zone is I try something three times in a row. If I miss it, I'm like, I'll come back later. I don't want to miss a fourth time. That'll set me off. And sadly, sometimes you don't have options where other places to go, but that's kind of my mental state is like, if I'm not hitting that shot, I know I'm going to get it eventually, but I'm just not finding maybe. It's one thing, I guess, if you're consistently early on a shot, you can make that adjustment. But if you're missing early, then missing late, then bricking, I mean, you're all over the place. I get away from it.
1: That's a wise move. You're avoiding a lot of frustration that way and just leading yourself to you know, a better way to score if you just can't nail those shots.
0: You know, another thing too you mentioned is play your own game too. And I remember a year ago being at the Bat City Open at Buffalo Billiards in Austin, Texas and a guy you know very, very well, a great player in Brian O'Neill. We were playing in a playoff and we were playing Adams family. And I think every other time I play Adams family, I'll put the ball on the left flipper, shoot the chair, backhanded into the chair. Brian was so good that day. Brian, as soon as he got the ball on the right flipper, shooting the chair, the harder of the two shots, but making it every single time. So stupid me, come up after Brian. I'm like, oh, if he can do it, I can do it. Never did it once, mind you. Hit the right of the chair, <laughs> out lane, typical lawler. See you later. That was the lesson that day was what you just described. Play your own game, and that is so so important.
1: It is. It is. If you want to experiment, don't experiment in a major tournament against Brian O'Neill or Keith Allen. It's just not the time. There they're rare instances where maybe you'll take a slight strategic deviation based on something you learned or maybe some new code or some an angle another player took that you could repeat, you know, a certain shot that you can hit safely, but generally yeah, you've got to stay in your comfort zone. And the other danger is and there's a famous golfer, I forgot who it was, he said if you spend too much time working on your weaknesses it could weaken your strengths and dilute them you know and and the more you you definitely need to grow and and expand out as a player in directions that might be uncomfortable with you and take time but you've got to be true to form as far as this feels good to me this is me i'm going to keep this going this way here's some really important changes i need to make as a player and i I'm going to make the effort to practice them and see if I can make them a part of my game and come naturally.
0: I'm going to listen to this interview before my next major tournament, which I guess would be at Expo, where you're going to be, and we'll talk to that again, because I just think of, again, that Cleveland pinball tournament I was at. I think I've played Iron Man, what, easily 500 times in my life and probably 100 mm-hmm. in competition. Do you know what I've never, ever done in Man? Ever, ever, ever. On the left flipper, I've never shot the left ramp. I've never backhanded it because I like the flow of it. I think I can get it from the right. I think I can get the right ramp from the left flipper. I watched a bunch of people do the backhand up the ramp. I thought, I'm going to try that now. Stupid me. Why? 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 Listen to this interview before my next tournament, and I suggest that to other players as well. We talked about Expo. You're going to be going there. Looking forward to seeing you there at uh, Pinball Expo in just a short time, and you're going to be going in that Power 100. We briefly talked about it. That is the best of the best. You must love this format. First of all, for those that don't know, it is the top 250 players, and it's their record against only the top 250. So... The win-loss record, if you are in the top 100 of that, like Andre is, you are invited to this special event at Josh Sharp's house. That is going to be one of the greatest tournaments ever, and I'm glad Jack Danger is going to be streaming part of that.
1: This is going to be something to see. And then there are older games and newer games, and you're going to see the best players in the world and some of the best players in pinball history going at it. So it's a thrilling idea, and it's at IFPA headquarters, which I'm believe means Josh's house Um, and so I'm excited to play there I'm excited to just butt heads with all these great players you know and and also a little fearful I think it's a six fair strike tournament meaning you could be out after playing three games and you're done with the power 100 but yeah that's a unique event and I always get excited about new formats and in this case this is one that's going to challenge me and everyone there just with the level of play and I suspect Josh is not going to have especially the modern game set up too easily. Otherwise we're going to be playing endless multi balls and balls. Um, so it's a very special event and just an honor to have qualified for it. Also another local player, Zach Woolens will be there. Um, so I'm excited to have a little uh, companionship from the Bay area to kind of go through this together. Cause it sure will be a test and uh, I'm, I'm just thrilled to be involved with it.
0: There'll be no ball saves. That's for sure. at Josh's that's uh, something you can count on. Absolutely. Now, It's neat that you're going to this event because most of your play is in California and, of course, in Pennsylvania for Pinburg and Papa when it's on. But you really don't travel that much, or at least maybe not as much recently. And I know you're very modest, but I personally believe that if you traveled more and were able to make more tournaments, you'd be ranked even higher than you already are. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, Jeff, you're absolutely right. I absolutely will travel for papa and pinberg no matter what most ifpa tournaments including a few in europe that i've done i did skip the two that were in sweden nothing gets sweden it's just it becomes a matter of uh, vacation time available to me and uh you know i really have to decide through the course of the year what do i want to prioritize beyond the obvious stuff that i'll do the local stuff the papa when there is papa i miss papa i'd definitely be there if there were papa this year So in the end, I do compete and travel minimally. Uh, There are a couple exceptions. 2014, I really wanted to get into that circuit final. And I played extra events I normally would. And when I say extra events, I went to my first in-disc down in Southern California and my first and only uh, trip to Portland for an event because they were circuit events. And uh, the ultimate result was, you know, built up my points and, and I accomplished what I wanted to. But what you're talking about, too, beyond hitting more events and getting more points, I'd expect to get bigger points at bigger tournaments, assuming I do well. That year of 2014 was exceptional for me, and I think because I played sharper that year, because I was competing more, in these heavy-duty tournaments with heavy-duty players. And so my game was at a heightened awareness level and a heightened skill level, because these other players in big events I was playing brought my skill level up in a consistent way versus play local things for four months and then hit a big tournament, play local things for six months and then hit a big tournament. That's not too often, although I hit the biggest of the big tournaments. There are way more opportunities out there for me to play, and I really haven't taken advantage of them. I've only been to 2 indists ever, and I think everyone who knows all tournaments and especially who's been there knows it's a phenomenal time, very competitive, in a great place with great players and people running it. But I've only been twice, which is a real shame.
0: And it's in your state. Now, I realize there's a big difference between Northern California and Southern California, but it's right there. And, uh, you know, you don't have to take the coast to get there. You can go a little faster if you want to get there. I, I hope to see you at Indisc again because that is a great tournament for sure. But let's talk about California pinball. There are so many other states that we commonly talk about. Stiff competition, Washington, Illinois, Pennsylvania, New York, Texas. But California, even without Keith Elwin there anymore, still a tough, tough state to win. And the local competitions are probably just as difficult.
1: Yeah, and as a player, I've been lucky that way. First off, that they're great players to compete and get better against. But also, California, Northern California, (laughs) around the Bay Area has become... Better and better as far as having games available to play, and so uh, we're lucky that way. Also, when we have a large or mid-sized tournament, you know, especially the circuit events like California Extreme and City Champ in the Bay Area, these become national events. You know, even though they're held out here, but a lot of West Coasters, and I'm talking all the way from you know Vancouver, Canada, all the way to San Diego, where Keith Allen was coming from will come to these events as well. We're kind of, you know, in the center of the coast relatively, and there's so many great players along the coast as well. So I appreciate our scene, especially in Northern California. It's been built up over the last, I'm going to say, 10 years or so by various people putting on events, various locations just cropping up like Free Gold Watch in 2012. And then, I don't know, the interest builds, And more people get into pinball, and then some of these people start getting really good all of a sudden. Or some people used to be good and used to play a lot and come back to the game after many years. And so it's such a hotbed. And if you look at some of the best competitors, some who are more established from Northern California, like Per Schwarzenberger, who runs the league, who started the league, the SFPD, San Francisco Pinball Department, as well as the city champ tournament which is extraordinary you know he established himself a while back or tim hansen who's phenomenal but doesn't get out to tournaments much because he's a family guy and then just in the last couple years these men and women many of whom play in the san francisco pinball department league are exceptional very competitive they test me they challenge me so although i'm not playing in these <laughs> national events you know i i I end up playing in a tournament or a league night and, wow, I'm playing the number one woman in the world and you know, two of the top 100 in the world. And this is just a regular old weeknight league night. So it's good competitively and location-wise. I'm having trouble keeping track of all the places that are opening up with machines. I haven't visited two or three places that have opened up of late that I really want to check out with many machines. So I'm really lucky to be in this area. It's quite an explosion, and of course, when you talk about California, those Southern California folks are great, uh, with some special locations and banning, and then and, and some of the toughest players on the planet, you know, Jim Belzito, Johnny Modica, Carl D'Angelo come to mind, you know, first and foremost.
0: There are so many great players there. You mentioned Free Gold Watch and City Champ, an event coming up in December, sells out immediately, and unfortunately, because of the size limitations, they can't take as many as they certainly would like. I know I'd love to be there one day too. So that will happen someday. But I think of just California alone. I mean, Ecker Schneider starting bells and chimes in Oakland there. Robin Lasson, one of the world's greatest pinball players, one of the top female players, Almost every single year, she's right there, and you probably play a lot against Robin. So it's just incredible how many people in California alone really come out to pinball. And there are lots of locations, not just Free Gold Watch, but a place you need to tell me about, because I've never been there. Tell me about the Pacific Pinball Museum.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, everyone knows about Free Gold Watch. I know top-ranked national players and international players have come by, Uh, but the Pacific Pinball Museum is really exceptional. Uh, I first went there 2006 and it was just the juju. And it was just a couple rooms, one with the M's and then they had just added one with solid state. And still a great place, especially at the time since there wasn't a lot of location play for pinball, you know, with places with that many machines. But this is in Alameda, California and all it's done in the last few years since I first went in 06 is expand and expand and expand. And basically, I don't know, it keeps taking over different businesses nearby um you know as they closed or you know went out of business or leases ran out and so it's this massive place it's it's dedicated to pinball in that it's a playable pinball museum you can play just about any of the games except for some of these old timey ones that are more like bagatelles real historical ones and they also push the science and the history and the art of pinball i went there once and there's a They have school groups come in, and they use them to learn about pinball and design and angles and geometry and a lot about science as well. And so uh, it's a special place in a lot of ways for me and and so many of us. What we appreciate best is the great number of games from all eras, very old and very new, and, and some really nice people who really keep the museum going. So it's a wonderful place, and uh, yeah, I hope they showcase it more often. Until 2012, they had the Pacific Pinball Expo, and uh, that was a great event, but it was so much work for them to put on, and although it helped the museum and nonprofit, (laughs) they basically gave all their energy to it, and and I guess it just wasn't energy and time effective for them to run this wonderful expo with hundreds of games and super rare old stuff, like Mermaid, (laughs) that you're not going to see just about anywhere else. So Pacific Pinball Museum in Alameda is definitely worth the visit, as well as free to watch if you're ever in the Bay Area, plus a ton of other places you can find on the pinball map.
0: There are shows like Expo that comes up, Texas Pinball Festival, where they have people flock to come play these games, and the vendors really make it possible, and the people that are donating the games. But permanent fixtures, like you mentioned, at the Pacific Pinball Museum, like the old Papa facility, Those are so rare and so special and also something like replay and this year for you it had to be so so rewarding. I know it didn't turn out the way you wanted to but again to be on the final stage final four with a chance to win it on the last game against Keith Elwin who by the way you have two second places in majors and I don't need to tell you this both second to Keith Elwin So it was a chance for revenge this year, but, I mean, you have to just tip your cap when you saw what Keith did on Harlem Globetrotters. That being said, you know getting to play it after what he did, there's still a chance. You know, a great
1: thing about pinball is you always have a chance until you lose that last ball. And uh, in that game with Jim and Chris and Keith rolling over Harlem Globetrotters, I did have a chance on that last ball. I think the game played well in that the spinner turned well. Once all the drop targets are down, you could hit that spinner for tons and tons of points at 2,000 a spin. Unfortunately, Keith was so far ahead of me, you know, what would it take? Maybe 10, 15 full shots to that loaded spinner uh, with all the points on it to pass him. And honestly, I have rolled Harlem Trotters, but I don't think I've ever rolled one that did not have an extra ball active on it and that did not have the bonus carryover. And, and this Pinberg game was tougher than most location games in that way. So it was a great second place. If someone told me before Pinberg that I would take second to Keith, I would say, I'll accept that. The harder part now that I did take second there is knowing how close I was in a couple of instances, a few points here, a few points there, on Starpool and uh, PinBot you know, I might have been in the running more. And so when you're that close, it hurts a little more than when you're far away from taking first.
0: Have you talked to Josh Sharp about how to accept second place? He's a pro at it.
1: Oh, man. (laughs) I don't know if I need to remind him of that after our F-14 Tomcat in 2011. I really feel for him because he's been knocking on the door so much for these major titles. And he did win the Papa Circuit Final, you know, this past year, which is one of those very competitive tournaments. But still, everyone knows he can do it, and it's just a matter of, you know, when he finally breaks through. But it's so hard now. So many new players are getting into the game and getting excellent. And there's this older crop of players who have been playing since the 90s and this newer crop of players that are young and sharp and are still getting better and better. You know, I'd love to see him win one because he deserves it and he's worked so hard and he's benefited the game so much with his work with the ifpa you know i was thinking a few years ago that there are some players out there who i feel that are better than i am and more consistent than i am who have not won (laughs) that big title and and josh was one of the players i had in mind when i was thinking of that
0: yes he's fine he's a good player and i'm sure he'll get his major once and yes that was a big tournament that he won the uh, circuit final this year just not a major
1: Did he boost the the points to 150% for that event recently, though, or was that an April Fool's Day thing?
0: I don't think he did, and I don't think he is because I asked him about that on a recent show. Um, He is going to boost some of them. can't remember which ones. You know what? In all honesty, if he boosted that one, it would make sense because that's a pretty tough one to win. All those people that really had a year's worth of great totals to get to that event, the top 40. Well, it was top 39 in me, but uh, anyway, he did very, very well, and uh, yeah, I think he'll get a major soon. Maybe? I don't know. (laughs) Well, let's hope so. Well, coming second to Keith is certainly no problem, but did you ever think about crying foul? Because he was supposed to retire, really. I mean... He sounds like a KISS reunion tour. You know, this is the final one, and then they come back for a full tour several times. It's like the who, for crying out loud.
1: (laughs) I wouldn't mind if he retired insofar as it would probably allow me to place one spot higher in every tournament I play just about for the rest of my life. But also, I appreciate Keith and what he brings to the game and how exceptional he is. And how people, whether they be beginners or hardcore fans, can see that greatness. And for me, what he's done most for me is just challenge me. Although I've lost him most times I've played him, he's made me a better player Where by just trying to beat him, going through that process, seeing what it might take to beat him, and then executing it. And sometimes it worked, most of the times it didn't, and he came up with something better. I became a much better player, and I was fortunate all those years he was in California uh, to have him as, as someone who made me a better player. And unfortunate in that, yeah, there are a couple world titles I guess I would have in addition to top of 14 um, if Keith weren't in those tournaments.
0: I've heard a lot of people say the same thing, too, but it is great to see him. And I, I wonder, because... You are someone, we mentioned you and Bowen sometimes do tutorials at Pinberg, and they're a lot of fun, and you can see those videos too. I know there's a few on YouTube. I wonder who teaches you. What do you learn from other people?
1: I learn a lot by watching and observing and looking at techniques. One odd moment I had once watching Bowen's tutorial, I believe, on Family Guy. This wasn't part of the tutorial, but he did a save that I had never really imagined or seen or really taken in and a ball coming towards the middle but drifting more to uh, towards one of the flippers. And he only hit, I believe, the right flipper uh, versus hitting both. And historically, up until that point, most of those cases, I would hit both flippers. And uh, so that's an example of something that helped me a lot. It took me some time to ingrain it in my game to flip one flipper if you can get away with it. You accomplish a couple things with it. One, it kind of deadens the ball, maybe fires it towards the in lane of the other flipper. And secondly, I I guess when you flip with two flippers, you're firing the ball away chaotically forward. And and when you do that more chaotically and harshly, it might come back at you more hard. So that would be an instance of watching someone and just learning from that move. You know, again, that wasn't the focus of the tutorial. Around here, especially, and also from watching uh, streams of, of competitions in particular, I learn a lot of rules. There's so many discussions, especially when a new game comes out or an older game gets a code update. Um, and there's some really great people at, at getting familiar with the codes around me in the Bay Area in particular. Um, Eric Wagonsonner uh, and Gene X. They have been a couple of my biggest tutors on new games or even older games, like I guess the Jurassic Park sequel game. And uh, they really analyze these games and and break them down and and pay attention to these details. And they have these brand-new games around to learn. And and they spend that kind of time figuring things out and read posts. And so that's another way that I learn from people. So it's watching great players do great things, learning the rules, I think, from friends, and also watching players that aren't super players doing things well in ways I don't do them. Um, You know, a week or two ago, I was just watching one of our league players hit some beautiful combos um, that I wasn't entirely, I don't know, I, I hadn't really seen angles like that on the new Deadpool game. And I learned from that, and it was exciting to see. And so from time to time, you know, even a beginner could show you something if you really pay attention.
0: If I'm at home on my games, and you can pick whatever kind of style game, whether it's a newer or an older game, what should I be practicing?
1: If you're at home practicing and, and wanting to improve, there are a lot of things you can do. You know, one person I think about as far as work ethic and training is Kaylee George. I heard uh, that he might practice on games at home with two-ball games. <laughs> so he learns to do what he needs to in two balls rather than three. And so when he gets to the tournament and has three balls, you know, it's kind of like a baseball batter swinging a baseball bat with a donut on it. to make the bat heavier while he's in the on-deck circle. And then when he gets up to the plate, the bat feels light. And in Kaylee's case, I remember discussing that he'll practice one-handed. And this is good. Both these things can be good for older and newer games. Um, Being playing one-handed is is finding out which shots are safer. Um, Also, kind of finding out how to pass and be patient with the ball to get it on the flipper you want or the flipper with the hand, uh, the flipper that has that your hand that is on the flipper is closest to. There's so many skills and, and, and you definitely start where you're at. I always recommend Pinball 101 as a video in all my talks. I think it covers just about every skill that you would need to practice plus some ridiculous things that only Keith can do (laughs) and a few other players, like an eight-way combo on the shadow. But every single one of those skills, I think, is worth learning. The only trouble is, it's one thing to learn them and practice them. I believe strongly when I give my classes, I always say this. Let's say you're trying a new maneuver, like a live catch or a tap pass. You can learn it right away. Watch the video. Try it mechanically. Maybe you can accomplish it on the game that you're playing there. And and, and your, your tap pass and your live catch is going to vary from game to game, so you'll need to make adjustments. But I think when you learn things, you choose whatever skills you want to work on, whatever strategies you want to work on, and you should practice them until they're ingrained in you and they come naturally. At this point, I don't say in my head when I'm doing a drop catch, I should do a drop catch here. Um, it just happens instinctively because I've been drop catching for a long time, and I want players, especially when I teach them, to just keep practicing those skills to the, until those things come naturally. Also, setting up their games at home if they want to get better in in more challenging ways so they don't play forever, although it could be satisfying, because if they want to compete, they're going to be playing on, on games that are really hard to keep the ball in play on. You know, with older games, I think... Uh, some really important skills are just finding a way to get the ball from one flipper to the other, uh, whether it be dead bouncing or tap passing or post passing, um, or a particular shot that tends to feed the flipper you want to get the ball to. I think on some of those older games, there might be an imbalance. For example, on Valley Wizard, most of the time you're going to be shooting that left spinner. So you got to find out, how do I get the ball onto that right flipper? And so uh older games all those skills are great nudging there are a lot of different ways to nudge and shake a machine you know to prevent drain or again to get a ball from one flipper to the other and i think nudging is something you need to practice on all era games and and maybe it's more more helpful on some of those older games because they are so drainy usually compared to modern games that give you uh, a little less space uh, between the flippers and the outlanes usually so I think it helps to be really intentional with whatever you're trying to do to improve as a player. You know, you look at your focus. Are there mechanical things you want to work on? Are there physical things? And so if you've got some games at home or on location that you're practicing and learning, putting the attention to the things that are your weaknesses that are worth practicing on and just locking in on those for a matter of time, again, until they come naturally, are real important things to do as you want to improve as a player.
0: That's a good point. You know, at home, I have no problem practicing, or even in competition. Live catches, tap passes, alley passes, post pass. At home, I practice drop catches, but that's not natural. So when I play in a competition, a drop catch for me isn't natural, like you said. So I avoid it like the plague, which is stupid. I can think of so many times that would have saved me, but I don't do it in competition. What is that block for me? Is it, maybe it's what you said, you know, I'm not comfortable or it's not natural, or I know it's a weakness, so I avoid it. Why can't I do it? What am I doing wrong? I guess you'd have to see it. But what is it about me in that block, or anybody who has a block about, you know, I do it at home, can't do it here. For me, it's the drop catch.
1: It's hard to say. I wouldn't say you're doing anything wrong. You know, I would just think that, you know, mentally, when you're competing versus at home, also when you're on games, you're less familiar with so many things don't come as easily as they do at home, especially on a game that you own at home, that you're playing in a competition. Sometimes that can hurt you, because although you know the rules, the game in the competition plays much differently than your own, and that can actually be a liability that you own that game. You know, you've got this good self-awareness that this is difficult for you, and maybe this is something that you won't ever resolve. You know, we all have kind of like our blind spots in, in the strategies we take on and mentally, you know, we have our pitfalls. And physically, there are things we have trouble doing. I know a few people who just don't tap pass, even though I think it's fun and and there are a lot of places it could be useful, but their comfort level just won't allow them to do it. Or a very beginner player feels so uncomfortable letting the ball bounce from one side to the other, they don't bounce pass. I mean, work as hard as you can on it. If you've got a skill you need to practice at some point, just like me not being able to be a highly controlled player – you might just say, this is me and uh, I'm going to find another way to catch the ball or something else to do with that ball besides drop catch.
0: Andre, I've always appreciated that you've been a guy who's helped others in the case of pinball players, but probably what gives you the most satisfaction is helping patients in the children's hospitals in California. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, well, that's my job. I work, you know, in a children's hospital in San Francisco, nothing medical uh, that I do. I'm a school teacher here, and, yeah, that is the most satisfying thing I do. And I love pinball, and it's super satisfying. I love to win and get high scores and play. And, you know, at the end of the day, though, it is a game. Here, you know, at the hospital, there are a lot more serious things going on, and I'm a teacher. I've always been a teacher, and, uh, you know, I enjoy working um, with kids um, here at the hospital, our schools for students, kindergarten through 12th grade. And uh, it's really special and, and unique work as a teacher. Um, one nice thing about it is it allows us to individualize what we do for each student because <laughs> they come in to school and also we work with them in their rooms and they're all different ages and each one needs something different depending on who they are and what's going on at the time. Sometimes they're sick that uh, school works, not even on the table. We might hang out and play an educational card game uh, or something like that. But yeah, I do appreciate young people. I like teaching them. And uh, here at the hospital, they do a lot of special things for the students to help them adjust and kind of keep things normal. And that's a big part of our hospital school program. A larger department, the Child Life Department, um, helps students in, in less specific ways beyond the academics. Adjust the hospitalizations and a couple of years ago our department decided that they wanted to get one of those pinballs from Project Pinball in Florida and we got a Star Trek Stern machine a couple of years back and I'm so pleased to see and how much students like it here. Uh, I remember about a month after it came in I asked the person who runs the room that it did. I said, are they playing pinball? And she said, They're playing it all the time, and and sometimes I walk by and I hear the clicking of the flippers. Uh, Don't spend too much time in there because they try to minimize the number of adults in these children's spaces, although I've given a couple lessons through the last couple years to some very worthwhile students. But that's another way, I guess, the pinball life and my teaching life have intersected. It's the connecting Project Pinball uh, with our children's hospital here. Um, and Gene X has also been a good supporter of the hospital kids, running a 24-hour marathon last year. Um, that was really successful and really exhausting for everyone. And also, he helped get that Project Pinball machine here and then lent his own personal Ironman to the hospital for a month because uh, our department's really cautious as far as bringing new things in. They want to make sure it plays well with the patients, as well as their brothers and sisters who also come and get our services. And so they, uh, it's just about trying one out and Gene just brought his from down the street. And, uh, you know, they were won over with his Iron Man and ultimately got the Star Trek. But yeah, it's a special place and special work that I do. And, uh, yeah, it's, I guess the pinball is quite the counterpoint to it. All fun and games.
0: Gene's a great guy and I'm not surprised to hear of his generosity. And the first time I ever talked about Daniel Spoiler, he mentioned you and the work you do at the hospital. Andre, it's always great to talk to you. Appreciate you coming on the show today.
1: Well, Jeff, thank you very much. It was great talking to you today
0: and uh, I'll see you at Chicago Pinball Expo. I will indeed. Thanks very much, buddy. Looking forward to it. Bye, Jeff. This has been your Pinball Profile. You can find our group on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Pinball Profile. Email us, pinballprofile at gmail.com. Please subscribe on either iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. I'm Jeff Tealas.